that going to work? Okay. <laughs> Let me move that over. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here this morning. And as Chris and I were sharing stories, it's amazing how connected you are when you're part of the body of Christ. And as you explore those connections, you realize that that sense of belonging is pretty important uh, and that truly that's where identity is. Um, just, and in fact, I've been sharing with Tina and Elizabeth and our, the host, uh, my host last night, and finding those connections of people you know who know someone else who's also part of the body of Christ gives you this sense of, wow, I really belong to something that's something important that's going on here. So we're connected, and this group is connected, and we're connected to the body of Christ around the world. And it's just a wonderful thing. Um, a few weeks ago, I was at a men's, it's just a small group of men, four or five of us, they together, get together once, uh, about once a month, and share and pray and talk about some scriptures we've read together. And one of the gentlemen in this group is named Jeff. Uh, Jeff has worked for Office Max. And um, that meeting, just about two weeks before our meeting, uh, Office Max had announced that they were merging with Office Depot. Anybody here work for Office Max? Okay. Well, in the Chicago area, that's where their headquarters has been, and Jeff tells us that Office Max is about a tenth the size of Office Depot. And so even though they talk about merger, everybody at Office Max knows this isn't a merger, this is an acquisition, that they're probably all going to lose their jobs. So our first question when Jeff sat down at the table was, hey, you know, Jeff, how you doing, man? You know, uh, 2,000 people out there at this big office in Naperville, and how's your job? He said, we all, we're all assuming that we've got to find a new job in the next year. And we had had a Bible study about a month before, and the, the question we talked about was one of identity. Where do we find our identity? And so he... he related that to this morning, he said, that's why we can't find our identity in what we do in the job or the employment we have. We have to find our identity somewhere deeper than that. Well, I went, well, done, Jeff. I mean, you know, you have to find it in Christ, in the body of Christ. That's where your identity is. That's where our authority lies. Well, it really resonated with me because my job uh, last November took a fairly abrupt and dramatic turn. I had been the international director of team, and that ended. And if you had asked me a year ago if I found my identity in that position or in that title, I would have said, no, no, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the family of God. I'm part of the body of Christ. You know, that's where my identity is. Until, of course, that title's gone. And then you realize how much of a hole there was there. And then you, then you begin to have to really reflect on these questions of where do I really belong? What, what really matters here? And where is my identity? Where is my authority? And do I find it in what I do? Now, if you're coming to Pathways, uh, if, if you're involved in that, one of the things we're going to be talking about is how does our culture define this? Because our culture does define it based on what you do. That's one of the things about an individualist society like ours. Uh, we tend to ascribe value to people based on what they do a little better than everybody else because we're all a bunch of individuals in a sea of individuals in our culture, and therefore we try and try out various occupations until we find one that we can do a little better than everyone else, and then we begin to 
latch onto that as our source of identity. That's why the first thing you ask somebody when you want to know, if you want to get to know them better, is uh, what do you do? I mean, after you've learned their name, that's about the next question, right? We don't ask what family you belong to, usually, not at first. And so <clears throat> that really, that's really goes deep to our sense of who we are as the body of Christ. Now, in team, we have this, we have a, a tagline uh, called being and building the body of Christ. And it's, it's our identity as a mission is wrapped up in those two terms, being and building the body of Christ. But that's the best way, that's the best hope for the world, and it's the best preparation for the next world, is, is that our identity within the body of Christ. And that's why we send missionaries around the world. So I'd like to talk about a, a text in, in Revelation, um, and I'd like, to, I'd like to try and recite it for you. So does anybody here know the name Herb Gregg? Is that, that's a name in the Phoenix area. Herb Gregg was a team missionary, uh, still is a team missionary, but he was in Dagestan. Uh, you've heard of that recently. Uh, if you remember, the, the Boston bombers had, you know, went through Mahajkala, Dagestan before they went to Chechnya. Uh, <clears throat> this is the southern Russian region of the Caucasus, and it's a pretty lawless region of Russia. And uh, our, a team of team missionaries was working there, and Herb, after about two years, Herb was taken uh, as hostage among Chechen, from Chechen guerrillas and spent eight months in a small washroom on the second floor of an old uh, educational building that was abandoned in, in the middle of Chechnya somewhere, and he was miraculously released after eight months. But the interesting thing about the story that really hit me when I heard the whole story was that when he was taken hostage, all he had were the clothes that he had on when he was, he was at basketball practice one Wednesday afternoon. It was on the way home from that that he was taken captive, taken hostage. So all he had for eight months was a shirt, a pair of pants, tennis shoes, and a little stub of a candle that for some reason he had in his pocket. No Bible, no cell phone, no computer, no pencil, no piece of paper, um, no toothbrush. That one really killed me. And he spent eight months in that washroom and came out in pretty good shape. And the reason was the time he spent with the Lord. And the reason he could spend time with the Lord is because he had spent enough time investing in God's word and hymns and had memorized stuff. So this really gave me a kick in the, you know what, to get going on memory work. So I've, I'm going to try and recite for you a passage from Revelation. It talks about identity. So John says, I, I, I turned around and looked, and there before me were seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword, 
His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, do not be afraid. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. After this, I looked, and, and there before me was a, a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone seated on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one was found in heaven or on earth or under the earth that could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if he had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. He was surrounded by the four living creatures and the elders. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men and women for God from every tribe and every nation and every language and every people. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the sound of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped. Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the end game of history. This is not the finals of the NBA or the last game of March Madness. This is the end game of history, of all of history. This is where we are all headed. Believers like you and me that have gathered now since yesterday afternoon in New Zealand and have been gathering ever since all across all across Asia and across Europe and across Africa and Brazil, and now we're gathering as, as our voices are raised into this global chorus of worship to Jesus Christ. We, together with all those from all of history, are going and will end up at that place around the throne. That is our identity. That is our inheritance. We are children of the Father, and we are servants of the king. And he says two things there in that passage that I want to point out and then tell you a few stories that, um, excuse me, that just illustrate it. He says they are going to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. So what does it mean to be the kingdom? Because the kingdom is already here and it's not yet here. It's not yet here in all that power and glory. But it is here because Jesus Christ is here, active in our lives. And as king, he wants to rule and reign through each one of us. So the first step is to identify the circle of influence that he has given to you. And you, say, you may say, well, I don't have a very big circle of influence. Well, yes, you do. You have your own life, first of all. That is a circle of influence over which you have control. You may have control over part of your family or all of your family. You may, have an inf- you may have influence over that. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's your schoolroom. Maybe it's your fellow students. Maybe it's uh, whatever circle or f- of, of friends or, or people that you work with or among is, a, is influence that God has given you. And he wants his influence and his kingship to work and rule through you into that. So as Dallas Willard would put it, Live as if Jesus were living your life in you. Not his life, but your life through you. He also says that the church, this gathering of the body of believers, is the training school and spiritual disciplines in order to be able to do that. So that wherever God has given you influence, you are serving the king of kings there. Which is the best preparation for when we're going to be the kingdom of priests and we set everything right at the end. And everything will be set right. There's not one injustice or one problem that this broken world faces that is not going to be set right by King Jesus. And we are the ones that are going to do it with him. It's like, wow, bring it on. Well, let's get started. That's what it means to serve the King of Kings. Right now, today, in my ministry, as the best preparation for then. 
And then the second part is we're, we're kingdom of priests to serve our God. Well, priests do two things. They represent God to people, and they resent, represent people before God. So the people in your circle are ones that you can lift up to God in prayer and say, these are the people that you've given me. These are the people that I know, and I want to bring them before you, that you would bless them, that you would open their eyes, that you would heal them, that you would raise them up, that you would bring them into your family and bless them with your presence. And then calling on the power of the Almighty God, which is the privilege and inheritance of the body of Christ gathered around the throne of God, King of Kings, and say, would you exercise your power in this way, in this neighborhood, among these people, or among this person? That's, that's the inheritance. That's our calling. We, as the body of Christ, have been seated right next to Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. And all power and rule and authority has been placed under his feet. And we have been seated with him as the body of Christ. And that is our privilege and our inheritance and our calling. So those two things, we, are, we have been called to serve the king and to change the world. And that's, that's what we're going to be doing then. That's what we can do now. And this is the best preparation for it. So just a few stories from around the world, because as we send missionaries, we're saying to missionaries, the kingdom is not felt or heard. The rule the, and influence of the king hasn't been felt or heard in that part of the world. And they need to know that. They need to know that they can be a part of this too. His influence needs to rule and reign there. And somebody needs to represent them before God. And if we don't know them, it's going to be really hard to do. So we need to send somebody there to incarnate the gospel and to represent those people before God and to represent God to those people. That's why we send people around the world, in order to extend the kingdom, to serve King Jesus, and to reconcile people to God and bring them into the body of Christ. Sometimes we think it's all about individual salvation. That's important because you don't get into the body without that. But once we're in it, this is the most exciting group you can belong to because this is, this is where the real work is going to get done to fix a broken world. Gulshan was a Muslim who worked and lived in the in this country of Indonesia in the eastern, eastern islands of Indonesia. And Gulshan hated Christians of any size, shape, or variety. And he wasn't a terrorist precisely, and he wasn't militant, but he hated Christians. And uh, he did everything he, can, he could to discourage Christians and make life difficult for him. But then he got a, a, a difficult illness that was almost impossible to diagnose or treat. And he spent a lot of money on doctors and then on any kind of alternative therapies he could find. And he was wasting away. I don't know the name of the illness. I don't have that detail. Um, but one day he was walking by the, f the house of a neighbor. The neighbor saw him walking by. He knew his dilemma. He knew Golshan's dilemma. And he called to him across the fence, and he said, Golshan, come here for a second. And Golshan came over, and the neighbor said, I know you're sick. I know you have not been able to get well. I can't do anything about that. I mean, I can't heal you, but I know somebody who can. 
And if you'd be willing for me to pray in the name of Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Messiah, I would be willing to pray for you. If you'd be willing to come over and let me do that. Golshan considered it. I think it took a few days before he finally agreed. And he came back to the neighbor and he said, all right, here's the deal. I will let you pray for me. And if Esau heals me, then I will become a follower of his. If he does not, I'll kill you. (laughs) Yeah, fun, huh? Imagine the courage. So the neighbor said, all right, it's a deal. Come on over. And he prayed for Golshan in the name of Esau Masih. And Golshan said that as this just this humble Christian. This wasn't some, you know, PhD uh, full-time missionary. This was a humble Christian on the corner. As he prayed for him, Gulshan said, it was like it was like I felt this electric shock started in my head. It came down to my neck, went out to the tips of my fingers, just kept going all the way down my, my body to my toes, and Gulshan was healed and became a follower of Jesus. And eventually he set, up, uh, he set up a non-profit agency in Indonesia to look after trans-migrant Muslims that had, tra- had gone to the eastern islands of Indonesia to provide education for them. Because the in- backstory, the uh, Indonesian government knows that these eastern islands, Papua and Papua Indonesia and Papua New Guinea, uh, which isn't part of Indonesia, but those islands, have the native populations have become almost 90% Christian in the last 50 years. And the uh, team has been part of that work. Well, they know that that could create secession from a Muslim government, so they're trying to repopulate the islands with trans-migrants, so they bribe them over with, with property and low taxes in order to get them to resettle. So you've got tons of, of Muslims coming from Java going to eastern islands of, of Indonesia to settle there to try and regain a Muslim majority. So... They're dis, they're, they don't have schools, they don't have infrastructure, they don't have all these things. So Goshan decided to set up uh, an agency that would create schools for these transmigrants as a believer. And then he ran into Nathan Jensen, one of Team's missionaries, who God had called to start a community center for exactly the same purpose, for, for reaching and helping transmigrant Muslim kids that were likely to become part of gangs if they didn't have somewhere to go. So they created a community center in Merauke, uh, southern Papua. And Nathan wanted, he needed some connection so that this community center would belong to something bigger than he was. And, and, and he met Golshan. And they shared their stories. And so now the community center the team is helping to run is actually part of the organization that, that Golshan started to st- for schools and now includes community centers and team is involved. And transmigrant youth are coming to Christ in that center. Praise God, huh? Now, you put, how could you put that story together? There's no strategy in the world. Let's see. Hmm, well, we've got to find a bunch of people on the corner who are willing to pray for their neighbor at the threat of dying, if they do. That's our strategy. Let's see if we can multiply that. You go, no, that's not how it works. The strategy is to be connected to the king. And to do what he tells you 
and he'll put you in contact with the person he wants you to be in contact with if you'll just obey the thing that he asks you to do. And that's how Nathan ended up finding out who Golshan was, and that's how I heard the story of Golshan. It's an amazing thing when we follow in obedience. The explosive potential of a single act of obedience to the king of kings can change the world, literally. Because he's the one that's putting all the pieces together. Sometimes we, we need to create our strategies. I'm not against that. But if those strategies aren't driven by listening to and responding in obedience to the king of kings, then we're, we're going to veer off, off course. Uh, another one of my just heroes here is, uh, her name is Rachel. She works in Vienna. Now, a lot of people, you know, don't think of Europe as that big a mission field. But Europe is one of the darkest places on the planet right now. And Rachel has worked in Vienna for many years with her husband, Dan. They have a thriving ministry in a church, which is it's an evangelical church connected to a Baptist background, but it's connected with all the other evangelical churches in the city, of which there are about 13. So here's the city of Vienna, which is pretty large, and there's about 15 evangelical churches. And Dan and Rachel, he was pastor and leader and, and one of the pastoral team in the church, and she worked with children's ministries. And in fact, she developed a children's curriculum which went across Austria, and she was well-known in, in developing children's workers. And they came home on home assignment, and when they went back, they had to find a new apartment to live in, and when they finally found an apartment that met their budget and, and so forth. Just one small drawback. In order to get to the location where the church met and the children's ministries took place and several of their association meetings happened, they, um, to drive there, they had to go through the red light district of Vienna. And prostitution is legal in Austria. And so she had two choices, either to drive through the red light district and to see the, the sex trade in real life or drive around it. But either choice was unhappy because the Lord started tapping her on the shoulder and saying, I want you to do something about this. And she goes, uh, who, me? I don't know what to do. Uh, surely somebody else, Lord. <laughs> and like Moses, surely there's someone else out there that can do this. And so day after day, week after week, and tap, 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 every time she drives by, I want you to do something about this. And... Finally, she said, okay, Lord, here's, here's the deal. I'll send out an email to the other women in the churches I know. And I'll ask them if they want to get together to pray about this. Because that's always, you know, we can always pray. That's not a commitment to actually do anything, correct? And um, if nobody shows up, then I'm off the hook. So... This day comes along, she sends out the email to, to the friend she does know in the children's ministries. 24 women showed up the first night. Uh-oh. <laughs> now we got to do something about this. So they said, what, what can we do? And they said, well, the least we can do is love these women, do something to show them we love them and care about them and pray for them. So they started setting out teams of two or three people. They'd go out in a van. They'd take hot coffee. They'd meet the women on the streets. They'd ask them to tell them their name and a little bit about their story. They got to know them. They showed them love. They showed them concern. 
they'd take them little gifts when they could on various holidays and, and you know, uh, special days of the year. And about six months into this, they were on the street one night. They were just visiting with some women. They happened to be Nigerian women. And at the end, Rachel said, do you, uh, do you want us to pray for you? And the Nigerian woman said, yes, please, please. And so as they were preparing to pray, she, the, the, the woman called her colleagues from down the street and said, hey, come on over here. They're going to pray for us. So Rachel started to pray for them. And as she's praying, they're saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah. These are the women saying this. And then they come to find out. Here's how it works. These women were offered jobs in Vienna, housekeepers, waitresses. They arrived. Their passports were taken away from them. They were taken to the police station, and they couldn't get the passport back without paying 30,000 euros. Then they're taken to the police station to get an identity card so that they could be employed in Austria. The problem is that the identity card says the one occupation you're allowed to be employed in. And in Austria, if you don't have that on your identity card, you can't earn your living any other way. <laughs> Prostitute. <sighs> and these were believers. These women were, were our brothers and sisters, our sisters from Nigeria, who had been trapped. And now, they started an organization called Heart Factory, and it, has now, it, it now has people from every city in, in Austria now have teams going out and visiting and loving women, and they have seen a few of them released, that is, escape. They have to provide some kind of occupation, some way for them to earn a living that's off the, you know, that's off the, the, the county rolls. But the government's beginning to listen, and they've recently... They've recently been able to show a documentary that's showing what's going on because the government's just turning a blind eye to it. And they're beginning to have an impact not only on the women that they're loving to Christ and sharing the gospel with, but they're having an impact on the very social structures of the nation. You go, praise God. The explosive potential of a single act of obedience. Okay, I'll send an email. This is what God can do to change the world if we'll just listen and obey. Just uh, one more story from Pakistan. And sorry for the sniffing. I, my granddaughter came over a couple weeks ago. And <laughs> yeah, shared. Um, Humble was a member of Al-Qaeda before Al-Qaeda became famous. So this was late 90s. And humble, um, staunch Muslim, uh, worked in the recruiting department for Al-Qaeda, traveled in northern Pakistan from school to school to recruit members, sent them to the training camps in Afghanistan, which were later bombed under Clinton's uh, administration. Uh, but humble had a problem. Humble wanted to be assured of his salvation. And M Muslims believe in heaven and hell far more than North Americans. You know, so they, they, they really are farther down the road here in some ways than we are. They thoroughly believe in the afterlife, and they believe in heaven and hell, and they do not want to go to hell. So if you ever talk to a Muslim, count on it. 
That matters. The problem is that the only way, that there's, there's no way of actually being assured that you can go to heaven. Because the way it works in general Islamic theology is that you do good things. You do the five pillars of Islam. You give alms. You go on. You, go on, you pray five times a day. You, you recite the creed. You, you go on your pilgrimage. You do these five things, and if you do those often enough, it, you know, your, your scale of good deeds goes up, and it may outweigh the scale of bad deeds, but even so, God can decide to let you in or not, depending on whatever he feels like that day. So there's no assurance, except for one way, and that is if you die a martyr's death in jihad. And then you're assured of salvation. So part of what drives this terrorism, this wave of terrorism, is simply this, this deep-seated desire to know that you can be saved. Well, we've got a message for that, my goodness. So um, Humble decided that he was going to have to do that if he, wanted to be, if he wanted to have eternal salvation, so he made plans to become a suicide bomber in Kashmir. And he went to the camps in Afghanistan, and he got his training in, ex- excuse me, in explosives and weaponry, and was preparing to, to, to carry out his mission. And uh, he, had a, he had a wife and I think a couple kids by then. And that's when he had, uh, he, so he took, his, yeah, he took his wife and his kids to a small village in northern Pakistan. Um, pretty sure I know the name of it. It's a little dusty town that my mother always said when we drove through it. I was a missionary kid there. And when we drove through it, my mother would always say, I'm never going to say that I, don't, uh, that I will never live in this town because then I'm, I'm worried that God will say, well, that's the one you need to live in. <laughs> you know, it was dusty in the summer and it was muddy in the winter and it was just kind of a mess. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's the town he, t- he took his family to and uh, probably the village on the outskirts. And he dropped his family off and he said, you know, I'm going on a journey and I'll be back and said goodbye and off he goes. Well, a few nights later, he had a vision. And in the vision, he sees his village, the background. And the people started coming out of the village onto the field. And he was on a rise on the other side of the field. And the, the, the people all started streaming out. And then he saw somebody among all the people who was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And he immediately recognized him as Jesus. Now, you, you hear this happening in, in the visions that among Muslims, you know, um, that are taking place, and you say, well, how do they know? I, you know, I don't know how they know. They know. Uh, now, the Quran does speak of Jesus, and they recognize him as a prophet. They just don't think that he is the son of God. He's not the king of kings. He's just another prophet. That's the distinction. So he sees Jesus whom the person he recognizes Jesus, Jesus comes through the crowd, walks up the hill to him, puts his hand of blessing up on his forehead, and says, do not kill, do not lie, do not cheat, and it's gone. And now he's in a real quandary, because the only way he can have assurance of his salvation is to do exactly that. He's just lied to his family. He's on his way to kill as many as he can. And now he's not supposed to do either of those because the prophet Jesus told him not to, and he's in a real dilemma. So 
he backed off of his plans. He continued his work as a recruiter for a while, and he would ask the various leaders of the schools, the imams who, who run these schools, and he would tell them the story. He'd say, I have a friend, and he had a dream, and it went like this. What would you advise him? And they would say, well, that, that's a very dangerous dream. Don't have anything to do with that friend, which, of course, made the dilemma worse. <laughs> and uh, so finally he withdrew from his recruiting position, took a teaching job in one of the schools in this little town. And then uh, still, still on the horns of this dilemma, but sharing it with different people along the way, and he came upon a group of Iraqi refugees at the time, and one of the Iraqi refugees, as he heard his story, pulls out a little card and says, these people have the answer for you. And it was a little card that says, the Pakistan Bible Correspondence School, which team has been running for 40 years in Islamabad. In Pakistan today, there are thousands and thousands of people reading and studying scriptures in secret. This, this correspondence school will send out unmarked envelopes, brown unmarked envelopes to anybody that asks, and you fill out, you read the Bible portion, and you fill out the answers to the questions, you send it back in, they'll, they'll grade it, they'll actually put comments on it and send it back to you and send you the next lesson. It's going on all over the place in Pakistan. Well, Humble gets his first lesson. It's the Ten Commandments. Oh, do not lie, do not kill. He works out the rest, must mean he shouldn't cheat either. And he goes, this is the interpretation of my dream. So he begins to just avidly study the scriptures, one lesson after the other. And then uh, his wife got pregnant with a third child. And towards the end of the pregnancy, she got eclampsia, um, very, very dangerous condition of high blood pressure. And they rushed her to the nearest hospital, which just happened to be Bach Christian Hospital, which team has been running since 1956 in northern Pakistan. And Dr. John Condi saved her life through a cesarean section, and his wife, Angela Condi, cared for the child, and both of them were, were brought through the thing without loss of life. And in the process, John starts chatting with Humble, and he begins to hear his story, and he begins to find out, this, this guy's a believer. God has transformed this life. And then John begins to work with him. And now other, others have, have carried on. And Humble and another son of a former mullah, who has also become a believer, another story, have, have teamed up to lead a bunch of people that are now gathering in these villages of northern Pakistan. The body of Christ is gathering in Pakistan from former Muslims who now bend the knee to King Jesus. And Humble's leading the way. Now, how do you put that story together? How many pieces do you have to... You know, what... Okay, so Humble's kind of the, wow, think about that. I'm not like Humble. Yeah, but are you like the person who sent out that next Bible study, just faithfully doing what God asked you to do? You know, go into work, send the next Bible study. That's your job for the day. You go, that doesn't sound very exciting. <laughs> yeah, not until you send exactly the lesson that God had intended since the, before the foundation of time to him on that day. Huh? Or the Iraqi refugee that just happened to have a card in his pocket. Imagine being those people. Wow. This is how you change the world. So instead of a suicide bomber killing as many people as he can, we now have somebody sharing the story of King Jesus and seeing as many people saved as he possibly can. Serving the king, changing the world. That's what we have been called to do.
That's our inheritance. That's where we're going, and now's our chance to learn how. And this group right here gathered, the body of Christ gathered here in this vineyard church, is the power base of the universe. Just like every time the body of Christ gathers, the explosive potential of a single act of obedience, never underestimated. So when God calls someone in this congregation to go somewhere in the world, and you say, well, that doesn't seem like too big a deal. Oh, don't underestimate what God can do. <laughs> if you are praying that they will follow the will of the king and know it and follow it daily, and they will not be thwarted by the enemy who will surely try and, and get them off course, either by not listening or by not obeying, um, and you're praying that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, anything can happen. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we worship you this morning. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. And we worship you this morning, and we are so privileged to be part of your kingdom. We're so privileged to be part of your family. Thank you that our identity is as your children. Thank you that we have a calling to serve the King of kings in whatever area of influence you've given us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would fill each one of us with your power to hear your voice and obey. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the worship team's coming up.